in our, in our new hymn book. We turn in God's Word this morning in the book of Joshua, chapter 10. Joshua, chapter 10. As we continue our series of messages throughout the book of Joshua, this morning we consider the first 15 verses of Joshua, chapter 10, under uh, the title, The Lord Fights for His People. And that's a lesson we need to learn in terms of spiritual warfare. That as we fight in this day, in this age, the spiritual forces of uh, this present evil age, we are to be reminded of the fact, as we are here in this chapter, that the Lord fights for His people. Joshua chapter 10. Let's hear then the breathed out word of the Lord to us this morning. As soon as Adonai Zadok, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. Because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, the king of Hebron, to Piram, the king of Jarmuth, to Japheth, the king of Lachish, and to Deber, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven. On them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said, In the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Agilon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took their vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. 
There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Thus far the reading of God's word to us this morning. Let's bow in prayer again. God, we thank you for this reminder of how you went before your people Israel. You gave them a promised land, homes they didn't build, walls to fortify cities that they didn't set in place, Lord. And even you rained down from heaven a hailstone that the battle might be won in a way that brings great honor and glory to your name. Father, you're that same God today. In our nation, in our time, we pray that you would go before us, that you'd make your name known, and that we would uh, repent from our sins, Lord, and draw near to you and stand in the strength and power that is ours in your name. Amen. Amen. What a great message of hope for the people of God. What a great text we have before us this morning, that the Lord fights for his people. Let's look at this passage under three headings this morning. First of all, the causes of the battle. Secondly, the events of the battle. And thirdly, the results of the battle. Because they are far more than what we just see here in Joshua chapter 10. The causes of the battle, the events of the battle, and the results of the battle. First of all, one of the reasons why there's a battle here, why we have Joshua chapter 10, why we have these five Amorite kings gathered together, why there is this this slaughter of these armies that is going to take place, One of the reasons is because there is a biblical truth at work. God is sovereign. God is in control. And you see, we note that because of what was in chapter 9. Chapter 9 gives to us a great failure of Joshua and the leaders and elders of Israel, right? They, They didn't seek the Lord. They didn't counsel with the Lord, and so they went off and and made peace with these folks from Gibeon. They got fooled. They got taken in. They didn't do diligence and search everything out and find out all the facts. They got taken in by it. They believed the lies that they were told, and then they find out that this city is only some 30 miles away, right in the heart right in the heart of their nation. They have now made peace. That's where chapter 9 ends. What does chapter 10 tell us? Well, here's a great biblical truth. God is still in charge. God is still sovereign. And throughout this chapter, we see God's hand at work. It is that truth that we learn from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that in all things, God works for the good of those who are his people. In all 
things. Not in some things, not in just good things, not in just positive things, not in just holy things. In all things, God works for the good of his people. God even takes sin and sinful actions that we commit or that are committed against us, God uses those to conform us to the glorious image of his Son. God works in all things for the good of his people. And we see that right here on display in Joshua chapter 10. God takes this alliance, this treaty of peace that that Joshua and the elders of Israel forge with this town of Gibeon, this foolish action that they have committed. God uses that now to display his power, to display his might. Does that mean they're excused from what they did? Oh, no. There's always going to be consequences to these Gibeon folk. We're even going to come to that when those of you who are in uh, Thursday morning Bible study, when we deal with Solomon. Gibeon comes back again and again and again in the scriptures. But God's going to take that event. They're making peace with these people. And he's going to use that now for the good of his people. And I could give you multiple examples of that throughout Scripture, but I'll I'll cut right to the chase. Look at the the greatest example of that is the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The greatest crime that has ever been committed in history. And God uses it, how? For the good of his people. For the good of you and I. So that we might have our sins washed away, that we might be cleansed, that condemnation might flee, and that we might have an eternal hope and an eternal inheritance in glory forever. See, that's the the biblical truth that is at work here. Placed right next to chapter 9, their failure, God now, in his sovereignty, takes their failure and uses it for their good. How so? Because the second thing to note as the reason why we have a battle is because God has used this peace treaty as a wedge. As a wedge between the nations, cities, that are aligned against Israel. Notice what happens. This Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem, is scared. And he's scared because Gibeon made peace. They didn't dare go to war. They didn't dare fight Joshua. They didn't dare fight Israel. They knew. See, Adonai Zadok understands the truth better than we realize here. And oftentimes that's what happens. The enemies of the church understand the power of the church better than the church does. That's why they fight so hard against us. Because they know the power and strength of the people of God. He realizes Israel must be a very strong, powerful nation if 
Gibeon was willing to just surrender. But he's not just afraid, he's angry. They broke the tie. There was a, there was a unity. They were together on this. They were going to fight Israel. They weren't going to give Israel an inch of territory. What did Gibeon do? Ah, let's make peace. In other words, they divided the coalition of those who were against. So this Adonai Zedek gathers together four other kings and says, we got to beat up on Gibeon. We've got to destroy them. They broke faith with us. See, even the enemies of the Lord have coalitions. And they don't like it when one of theirs deserts. They don't like it when one of their factions makes peace with the people of God. They're angry about that. Because you see, they really don't want peace. They want war. They want to destroy the people of God. So what's the second cause? The second cause is the fact that God uses now this peace treaty that Joshua has made with Gibeon to rile up these other kings who now come as a force against Gibeon to make war against it. Well, what's that got to do with, with Israel? Israel has a peace treaty with Gibeon. So notice what happened, okay, starting in verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua. Hey, Joshua, remember us? We're the Gibeonites. What did you do? You made a treaty with us. What does that mean? Well, it's a treaty. It's a covenant of peace. Remember what Joshua had said, we will not destroy you. There is a pledge in that, that because they are now the servants of Israel, they now come under the protection of Israel. We're in trouble here. We're your servants. By covenant terms, you need to come and protect us. You need to fulfill the responsibilities of the covenant, which is not only to not take our life, it's also to protect us. So notice what's happening here. We got five kings that were not on Joshua's radar screen yet to do battle with. What does God do? God uses this covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites to draw these five city-states, nations, at the doorstep of Gibeon, Gibeon now calls to Joshua and says, we need help. Joshua realizes he has to fulfill his word. He's given his vow. Here he is. The sovereignty of God. God is bringing about the battle on his terms, in his manner. It's not a plotted battle by Joshua. It is God who is in charge. The battle is the Lord's. Secondly, note some of the events of this battle. First of all, note that, that Joshua comes overnight. 
Did, did you see that in the text? Okay. That they come overnight. Verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Now why do I point that out? Because it wasn't just a march. It was a run. How do I know that? Because in chapter 9, back in chapter 9, verse 17... We read the following. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities, that is, Gibeon, on the third day. So in ordinary march, it took three days for the Israelite army to go from Gilgal, where their camp, their central location, to Gibeon. What were we just told in chapter 10? Joshua did it overnight. How do you, how do you get from a three-day march to an overnight march? You run. You run to the battle. You run to the foe. Joshua, you made a covenant of peace. We're in trouble. The other armies are gathered against us. How does Joshua respond? <laughs> you know, if we delay this a few days, those Gibeonites will get their due. Those five kings will just crush them and then we'll be done with them. Oh, no, gave my word. Made a covenant. Have a responsibility. There are others sitting in rooms in Washington, D.C., who ought to be listening to this message this morning. When you give your word to protect and guard, you better fulfill it and not delay. You run to the battle. That's what Joshua does. He is running with his army in the night to get to this battle. He realizes his responsibility to help and to assist. It is his duty. Even though it was a foolish covenant, yet he is there to fulfill it. Because he sees the hand of God at work. And this is God giving him the opportunity to deal a blow to these five powerful city-states. They ran to help. They ran to the battle to assist. There is a lesson as well for you and I in this. Oftentimes, we hear of brothers and sisters in the Lord who face times of persecution, who face times of hardship. These are not times as brothers and sisters in Christ because we are in covenant with them. For us to just sit back, we should be running to the battle, running to help, running to do all that we can for the glory of God. The second event is this heavenly storm. What an amazing thing. This is, this is just one of those texts I just love, okay? And the Lord threw down hailstones. 
Just, just listen to the text. The Lord threw down hailstones. Now, I know that you know, perhaps children, okay, maybe some teenagers, maybe some men are thinking, hey, do you have a pile of ice balls sitting in a basket next to him? And he's picking them up and checking them down. In essence, yes. In essence, that's what the text is telling us. No, not ice balls in a basket. But it is the Lord. This storm, this storm that comes about here in Joshua chapter 10 is a heavenly storm. This is not just climate change. This is not just happenstance. It is the Lord who brings about a storm in which it is so ferocious that the hailstones are so large that when they strike a human being, they kill them. And God is the cause of the storm. God is the cause of those winds that are, that are bringing those rain pellets back up and up and up. And they, they fall and they get heavy, but he, the wind is so strong that he's bringing them back up. And it's like as if God from heaven is measuring and he goes, no, them golf ball sized things aren't going to do it. Ramp up the wind. Now, them baseball sized things probably aren't going to do it. Ramp up the wind. Until we have a hailstone that is so large that its striking of an individual causes death. And did you read the text? More died of the hailstones than Israel killed with a sword. Whose battle is this? God is moving the forces of nature and describing it in such vivid terms that, yes, that picture and that image of, that we have of God standing there throwing them down becomes the way in which the text wants to describe it. So involved in the battle. So involved in caring for his people. So involved in rescuing his people. So involved. In his love and his covenant commitment to his people. That the Lord is rushing to the battle. Third. What else happens? Well things are on Israel's side. But as Joshua surveys them as a military commander. He observes. Given where we're at. Given where these folks are trying to get to, we don't have enough light. It's going to turn night. And once it turns night, we've lost them. They're going to be out in the trees. They're going to be out in the hill country. They're going to be hiding by it. We'll, we'll, we'll never get this moment back. This is the moment. We have to seize the moment. We have to seize the day. But what am I going to do? It's getting dark. Lord, stop the sun. And what happens? There has never been a day before or since, that means since to the time of the writing of Joshua, that the Lord has ever listened to the voice of a man as such. What did the Lord do? He stopped the universe 
God stopped it. He said, okay, you need more time? I give you more time. Why is Joshua able to return in all Israel, all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal? Why? Because the Lord fought the battle. How? He stopped the universe. The universe is on hold while Joshua is pursuing and cleaning up the armies of these five kings. And what's our worry? What's our worry as we enter into a spiritual battle? What's our concern? We have a God who stops the universe for his people. We have a God who throws down hailstones for his people. We have a God who is so sovereign, he takes foolish covenants and uses them for his glory. What can man, what can man do to us? When we have the Lord God fighting the battle. Thirdly, what are the results? Victory. Verse 14 very clearly tells us there has not been a day like this or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Comma, for the Lord fought for Israel. There's victory. It's victory because it's the Lord who fought. Yes, Joshua is doing his part. Yes, Joshua is obedient. Yes, Joshua is being the military commander. Yes, Joshua is still using his knowledge, his expertise. Yes. But the story is summed up. The battle is summed up with the words and the Lord fought for his people. I want to take you to another day. I want to take you to another day. Because you see, it's interesting because the book of Joshua is the corollary to the life of Jesus Christ. Joshua is our Old Testament Jesus. Jesus is, in Hebrew, Joshua. The picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the picture of the military commander. And it reminds me of another day. Another day and another victory. Only on this day, the sun did not stop. On this day, the sun was darkened. And for three hours, one could not see because of the darkness that overcome the land. The sun is hidden. 
and then, and then through the darkness comes a shout. A shout, not of defeat. What is that shout? It's the shout of victory. It is finished. What's the it? What's finished? Some might argue and say, well, Jesus is crying out because his suffering is finished. That might be in play. That might be there. But I think it references something else. It is finished. What? The darkness. It is finished. What's finished? Darkness. Evil. That's finished. Satan and all his hosts are finished upon that day and upon that moment. It is finished. It's done. Do you listen to the line in that song about the battle is the Lord's? We have the victorious foe. Why? Because the enemy is already defeated. The enemy is already destroyed. How? The Lord has fought for his people. The Lord, our God, fought for you and I. And the victory is his. The victory over sin. The victory over evil. The victory over darkness. The victory over guilt. The victory over condemnation. The victory over death. The victory over hell. The victory over judgment. It is finished. Our New Testament Joshua fought. Not by saying let the sun stay up. No, in the midst of the darkness. In the midst of the forsakenness. A battle is raging. And in that battle, it is the Lord our God fighting for us as his people. Why? Because he has made a covenant of peace with us. Even before the foundations of the earth were laid. A covenant of peace was made between ourselves and the Lord God. And Jesus Christ runs to the cross. Jesus Christ goes to the cross and he fights that battle. And he is victorious. We fight not from hesitancy. We fight not from failure. We fight not from weakness. We fight from the victory that the Lord has fought for you and I. But there is coming yet another victory. Another victory wrought by the hand of the Lord. Listen to these words of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Think about it in the context in the world in which we live today. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? There's a lot of plotting going on these days. There's a lot of behind the scenes taking place. There's a lot of evil that is at work. Why do the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves 
And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That is the war cry of the church of Jesus Christ. Be warned, you principalities and powers of this present evil age. Be warned, you rulers of this earth. Kiss the sun. Serve. Acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 20. I always marvel at this text. This, this text just always just boggles my mind. You have so much in Revelation, so much buildup, right, of all these things that are happening and taking place. And, and so you'd think when you get to the, to the final scene, the actual, okay, here it is, we're going to do battle with Satan. Boy, that's got to take chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters to describe this battle. Oh, how intense. Oh, how difficult. Oh, what a struggle this, this end of the universe, end of time struggle is going to be with Satan and, and Jesus Christ. Oh, man, it, it's probably going to go on forever. Listen to how it's described. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city. Notice kind of the corollary here to Joshua chapter 12 or 10. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. That's it. How does it end? Christ comes. What happens? Satan's thrown into hell forever and ever. That's it. Where's the battle? There is no battle. Where's the fight? There is no fight. Why? The victory is the Lord's. The Lord God who, who we saw in, a, in, a, in this passage of Joshua chapter 10 who is willing to take the forces of nature to defend his people. The Lord God who is going to hold the sun in its place. The Lord God who himself comes and pays the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Yeah, Satan's going to make war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, 
He's gathering forces. He makes his march. And what happens? Christ comes. And what happens? He's thrown into hell. And for one moment, will Christ struggle with Satan? Oh, and that trumpet sounds. And the Lord descends. The victory. The victory belongs to the Lord. And do you remember, just to make a final little tie-in, that when glory is then described for us in the very next chapter, one of the things we are told is that there isn't even a sun there. For the Lord God and the Lamb are the light. Oh, my friends. In your personal struggle, your personal spiritual battles that you fight with sin. Yes, we have our responsibilities. Yes, we have our duties. But the victory is the Lord's. Because the battle is His. It's the church of Jesus Christ. As we fight these principalities and powers of this present evil age. We have responsibilities, we have duties, but the battle and the victory is the Lord's. And as we look to the end of time, the victory is the Lord's. Because we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. And he has made the ultimate covenant of peace in the blood of his son for you and me. What a glorious hope and future is ours as the people of God. Amen? Father, thank you for a word of truth that we could read this morning. That we do not pick it apart and think about how these things could not be. No, we confess them to be true. They are the realities. They are truth. For they reveal even the greater truth. That you are sovereign. And you fight for us. And that you love us. In and through that finished, victorious work. Of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, and God's people again say, Amen. Amen.